Good morning, Tuolumne Community Baptist Church. So glad that you're tuning in to our Sunday morning service. I am so glad that you're here. Last week, I, I didn't get my intro recorded. I'm not sure what happened. I always like to talk to you a little bit before the service. Um, I'll see if I can figure out what went wrong. I, hopefully, this intro will be saved. Anyway, we are in now in Judges chapter um, 8. Um, kind of a serious chapter. Um, Gideon has has won the battle, and now he's he's not king. In fact, he even says that he doesn't want to be king, and yet he acts like a king. Um, we have to really pay attention to this chapter. We have to see uh, our human nature. All of us have the same human nature that Gideon has, and we're all subject to the Temptation, we're all subject to the potentially of failing, of falling into sin. But we have something that Gideon didn't have. We have a Savior. And we have the living Word of God sitting on our laps. We're able to read it and see it and understand who we are and who we are in Christ. So pay attention. I think you'll enjoy this message. God bless you. I hope you come out and see us soon. Bye-bye. We are in the book of Judges. Today we're venturing into chapter 8. These last three chapters have been about Gideon. Gideon out of, he's judge number 5, and uh, I think he gets probably most of the press. You know, I think there's more wrote about him in the Word than any of the others. Samson's probably up there alongside of him, but Gideon's been an amazing story. You know, when you're in that place, you know what I'm talking about. When you're in that place where it's fearful, painful, difficult to be in that place. It may seem like you can't go any further. This is it. I can't do this. I can't be here. I can't go anymore. It actually turns from fear into despair. Oh, I know I'm not talking to anybody here. I think we've all been there. I want us to look again how God dealt with Gideon in this very place. I want us to see how God so lovingly gives him what he needs. God whittles down an army of 32,000 down to 300 men. Three hundred men the dog lappers. And they're facing an army, a military of 135,000 with swords and camels. What did Israel have? They had each other and they had God. That's all they needed. But 300 men. It's hard to get your head around this and I, I gotta say... Like little Emily's probably facing that army of 135,000. 
And she's saying, God, there's no way. I can't do this. You know, ironically, it's right where God wants her to be. If she just looked to him. Because that's all that's left. Is to look to him and say, all right, God, I can't do this. I, I, I can't live this way. I can't go through the things I'm going through. Father, you got to do something. If God is for us, who can be against us? Yeah, we all know that. Amen. We know that scripture. So why was Gideon still afraid? Because of his human nature. I'm not saying it's okay to live in fear. But I'm saying that God understands. God understands the human condition. Listen to how God was so graciously generous to Gideon. I'm going to go back a little bit. Judges 7, 7. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. 9,700 people were going home. God left him with 300. And we know that the, this is the angel of the Lord. This is that Christophany. This is Christ. This is God speaking directly to Gideon. So why do he fear? He's still looking down into that valley. And the Bible tells us that it looked like this, the sand on a seashore with the amount of camels and the people that they had. But the word of God from God's own mouth said, I've delivered them into your hand. So we move down to verse 10 and God sees that Gideon is still afraid. He said, but if you are afraid to go down, what he's saying, if you're afraid to go down and fight this battle, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura, your servant. So he goes down. Why? Because he's afraid. That's why he's, 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 he's freaked out. Yeah, God told me. God told me that he's with me and he's going to deliver me and he's going to deliver me into my hands. I know he said it, but he's still freaked out. It was an insurmountable problem. And because of his human nature, just like yours and mine, God doesn't get bad at him. He tells him to go down to the camp and listen. Sneak down there, Gideon. Sneak down there in, in the dark at night and go down, I'm paraphrasing, and, and go down and, and listen. I want you to hear something. And one soldier has a dream. And he wakes up and he tells his partner, hey, I had this crazy dream, man. You won't believe it. Guys, what's the dream? He said, this huge barley loaf, a barley loaf of bread come rolling down the hill, hit the tent, exploded the tent, went down. Everybody died. It's crazy. And the guy sitting next to him begins to interpret the dream. He has no idea that he's speaking, that God is speaking through him. And he says, that has to be Gideon. That has to be Gideon's army, and God is with them. And when Gideon heard this, and all of a sudden it lifted him and it emboldened him, all of a sudden he goes, they're talking about me. This is real. Why couldn't he believe when God spoke to him? 
because of his human nature. And we're all just like it. We have the living word of God that says by his stripes, we are already healed. Not we're going to be healed. We're already healed. And yet we still freak out. And sometimes all it takes is the word from somebody that's maybe not even a Christian. God uses people in our lives to bring us a word. Pay attention. God is at work in your life and he knows you're afraid. Even though... We don't walk by fear, we walk by faith. But we still get afraid because we have a human nature. God doesn't get mad. He just gives them a little more encouragement. So no matter what you're facing, it could be pretty frightening, could be pretty fearful. I wanna say to you, fear not, but you're gonna still be afraid. Trust me, I know because you're a human being just like me. I get afraid. But I got to trust God. And sometimes when I get afraid, one of you will come up and say something to me that'll turn it all around. Wow. God loves me so much that he gave me a word from Dave who was completely unexpected. They didn't even know that he was speaking the words of God to me. Let's look at Judges chapter 8. By the way, today is Communion Sunday. Um, I've got about 25 minutes to get through this, and I am going to get through it even if we run past. So if you all freak out, you can run out of here screaming, I'm sorry, ahead of time. But we're taking communion at the very end, because at the very end, I'm going to address some things. And as I address those things, it's very important that that's when we take communion. Amen? So just stay with me on this one. Now the men from Ephraim said to him, all right, let's set this up a little bit. They've defeated most, uh, about 120,000 of these people. The battle was last week. Remember, all Israel had was a water pot with a torch in it and a horn, ram's horn. That's all they had. They didn't have swords. So Gideon split them up into three groups, a hundred over here, a hundred over there, another hundred over there. And at the same time, when I tell you, I want you to break the water pots, you can imagine 300 water pots crashing at the same time. Then we're going to blow our horns and then light the torches. This was, this was psychological warfare. It was all in the pitch of night. It was at midnight. It was dark. There was no moon. God probably allowed a covering of clouds to come so there wasn't even starlight. It was as black as black could be. And this totally freaked these men out. They jumped up in this darkness and they grabbed their swords and they started swinging their swords, killing one another. 120,000 men died. Israel didn't lift a sword. Another 15,000 men were on the run. And that brings us to where we're at today. But then these men from Ephraim, Ephraim is another tribe of Israel. Remember, for whatever reason, only between Gideon and God knows why, he only went to four tribes and asked for their men. And he had 32,000 men respond out of those four tribes. Pretty amazing number. And God whittled it down to 300. So that's, he had these 300 men. That's all that was left. 120,000 men died that night after they crashed the pots and did all that God had instructed him to do. So now the men of Ephraim come to 
to uh, Gideon and say, why have you done this to us by not calling us when you went to fight the Midianites? And they re reprimanded him sharply, which means they were upset. They were saying, why would you do this to us? We want some of the glory from our tribe. They were one of the strongest and biggest tribes in the tribe of Israel. And they wanted some credit for what's going down here. Oh, Gideon is a gifted man of God. So he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Wow. Is, it, is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abzener? Abzener is his tribe that he's from. They were the smallest, puniest tribe of, of all of Israel. And they weren't very good at farming and graping and doing that kind of stuff. And he's saying here, if, if we were to go glean the grapes in your field would be better than us growing them on our own in our fields. You guys are awesome. You supply all of Israel with, with, with grapes and wine and, and joy. So how can, you, how can you say that? I realize this is a little confusing, but we're seeing a politician at work here. He's saying what you guys have done is far greater than what I have done. And he knows that God gets all the glory, but I don't think that was even in Gideon's mind right here. Gideon compares the reputation of the Abizarites tribe to that of the people of Ephraim. His statement, literally, not about grapes and harvest. The implication is Israel already perceives which clan is better and which one is greater. It's interesting, if you read Proverbs 1, it says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a, hearth, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I think Gideon knew that. And the politician in him kicked in and he, he started talking to them really nicely. Listen to verse 3. He says, God has delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. Those are those two princes that these guys from Ephraim actually caught those guys. Which gives them, that's, that's a great credit to their account. And what was I able to do in comparison to you? Then their anger toward him subsided when he said that. When Gideon, verse 4, came into Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over. They were exalted, but still in pursuit of that 1,500 men that had gotten away. You remember those guys? Or was it 2,500? I don't remember now the number. Then he said to the men of such cloth, this is another tribe of Israel. Please give us some loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted. And I am pursuing Zebeth and Zibulah, kings of Midian. They're pursuing these two kings. They haven't caught up to them yet, and they're going to get them and kill them. And the leaders of Sachka said, Are the heads of Zebeth, Zebeth and Zilmanuma now in your hand? that we should give you bread to your army? Yeah, come on, guys. We're all the same. We're all Israelites here. They don't know that he's just defeated 120,000 men in the field. They're obviously confused about what's going on, and they're thinking, hey, these guys may come after us and kill us because they've been, they've been already torturing us all this time. No, we're not going to give you any bread 
Go get these guys first. So Gideon said for this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zabeth and Zaluma into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness with the bears. Briars, thank you. He was pretty upset. So he goes on to another tribe. Then he goes to Penel and spoke to them in the same way. And the men of Patel answered him, saying, the men of Satkath had answered. They answered him the same way. Verse 9, so he spoke to the men of Penel. When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Obviously, they had a tower built. And he's going to come and tear it down. Verse 10, now, Zabeth and Zal... <laughs> that name kills me. Zalmua were at Kehok. Karkar, Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000. And all who were left in the army of the people of the east, 120,000 men who drew sword had fallen. So this gives you the number. You're thinking, well, pastor, you're just pulling these numbers out of your head. No, they're right here. 120,000 men died, and there's 15,000 that had gotten away. 135,000 men. Then Gideon went up the road to those who dwell in tents in the east of Moab. And, okay, somebody pronounced that name. Job Behath. And he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. So it's interesting now, Gideon and his 300 now obviously have swords. And they got equipment. They probably got some camels. They got stuff going on for them now. And they, they go in and they defeat this other army. Like, like God would have them. Verse 12. And when Zeba and Zalmuma fled, he pursued them. And he took the two kings of Midian. Oh, here they are again. They keep repeating these names just to torture me. Zeba and Zalmuma and routed the whole army. He routed the whole army. What he's saying is they defeated him. They defeated the whole army. And Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle from the ancient hares, and he caught the young men of such cloth and interrogated them. And he wrote down for him the leaders of such cloth and its elders, and it was 77 men. So what is, what's going on here? He caught this kid, and he said, okay, Tell me all the names of your leaders in your, in your tribe. I want every name. Every name of any man of importance, I want their name. Then he came to the men of Setzkoth and said, Here are Zabeth and Zalnuma, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of these two guys now in your hand, that we should, drive, that, that we should give bread to your weary men. So he took the elders of the city, those 77 men, and thorns of the wilderness and the briars, and with them he taught the men of such cloth. What do you think he taught them? <laughs> he beat them. They got a scourging, a bloody scourging is what he'd give them. Plainly, they were scourged. Verse 17, then he tore down the tower of Penel and he killed the men of that city. 
Now, I don't know why he decided to kill the men of Pinal and not the men of Sackcloth. I have no idea. But Gideon's running the show at this point. And he said to Zeba and Zalnuma, what kind of men were there whom you killed at Tabor? So he's, he's questioning them. Who did you kill when you went over there at Tabor? Who was it? And they answered, as you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king, meaning they looked like you, Gideon. They looked like you. Then he said, those are my brothers of my sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not have killed you. And he said to Jeph Jephthah, his firstborn, rise and kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. I don't fully understand what's going on in Gideon's mind here. Maybe he's giving opportunity for his son to be a man. How long did the son have a sword? Probably that day, taken off the dead that had been slain. So the kid says, no, I can't. I can't do it. I've never killed a man. I can't do it. So Zeba and Zalmua said, rise yourself and kill us. For a man is, so is his strength. So Gideon said, all right, I will. And Gideon arose and killed them both. I'm not even going to repeat their names. And took the crescent ornaments off their camel's necks. All the leaders had gold and stuff hanging all over their camels, and so he took it. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, and your grandsons also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. No, he didn't. Who did? God did. God did. But Gideon said to them, pay attention to what he says. I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. That's probably the best thing that he has said in quite some time. But what I want you to pay attention to as we read on, words are cheap. Words are cheap. This was an excellent statement that was being, and it was the truth. But I'm telling you, he didn't mean it. At this point, I believe Gideon's heart had already been corrupt. And please understand, I'm not Gideon's judge. But I want you to hear this. I believe he had no idea, like we do, how much God loves him and, and was concerned about him. I give him more grace, I believe, than I deserve myself because of what I know. Things he could not have understood because he doesn't have the Bible and he doesn't have Jesus Christ as his Savior. So I do give him grace. So what about us? Do you know people who are Christians that don't really act like it? I'm sure we all do. Understand how you live doesn't make you a Christian. It's what you know and it's what you confess. It's what you truly believe. And what you believe is truly how you're going to live your life. Think about it. What you believe will, will cause you to make the decisions that you make. 
What you believe is what says that you're a Christian. Look at 1 John 2, 3 through 6. It says, Now by this we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. Verse 4 says, He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. Hmm. Verse 6. For he who says he abides in him, ought him ought also to walk just as he walked. So we're held at a lot higher standard than what Gideon was at. But we still need to look at his life and try to understand why he was making the decisions he was making. That's why it's in the Bible. Let's go back to Judges 8.24. Then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request to you that each of you would give me the earrings from the plunder, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Think about what he's saying here. I don't want to be your king, but I want you to treat me like one. That's what he's saying. I want you to bring all the gold that you've taken off this 120,000 people that are dead. I want you to bring that gold and give it to me. And, it, and there's more than that. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment and each man threw into the earrings of his plunder. And you guys thought earrings was a new thing for guys. Come on. It's been going on for thousands of years. Verse 26, now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Besides the crescent ornaments, the pendants, the purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the chains of gold that were around the camel's necks. 1,700 shekels equals to about 50 pounds today. Anybody know what an ounce of gold goes for today? I think it's more like 18. It's closer to 1,800. So I did some quick math, and it's not terribly accurate, but we're talking somewhere between 1.3 and 1.6 million dollars that they gave to Gideon in today's. And it had to be huge in their day. Then Gideon made it into an ephod, and he set it up in the city in Ophrah, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. I know it hurts my heart a little bit, Dave. When I read that, it's like, that's not right, Gideon. What on earth are you thinking? What are you doing? The ephod was an article shared of, of sacred clothing that was worn by the high priests of the Levitical priesthood. The Lord directed that they were not to wear ordinary clothing during their service, but they were to have holy garments made by those of the Lord who had, had filled with the spirit and of wisdom. You can find that in Exodus 28. Twelve stones are to correspond with the names of Israel's sons. Each stone must be engraved like a seal with the names of the 12 tribes. 
Every time Aaron and his sons and or any future Levite put on these vest plates, this breastplate, they were reminded of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what it was to be meant. So why did Gideon build this ephod? He's not a high priest. We're not sure. He had no reason to wear it, and I don't believe that he did wear it. He, he built it and put it on a stand, and everybody worshipped it. All the great and mighty things that Gideon did. Verse 28. This Midian was subdued before the children of Israel. Thus, Midian was subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years of the days of Gideon. Forty years they lived in peace. That's a long time. I think this might be one of the longest stretches in the book of Judges where they lived in peace. They weren't in bondage. They weren't. And what do they do? Gideon himself, they said, it said that Israel played the harlot. The harlot over this, this thing that he had built. I'm telling you, it's, it's frightening, but it's human nature. It's human nature. He didn't have the understanding that we have. He should have. I, I, I get it, but he didn't. It goes on, verse 29. Then Jeroboam, Gideon, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. Many wives. We don't know how many wives he had. I mean, if he bore 70 sons, how many daughters do you think he had in that mix? I mean, we don't know. All, all I know is he had no closet space in the house, okay? There was, there was probably a lot of battles over the thermostat. It, it just, nothing made any sense. And it doesn't make any sense. Was God behind all this? No. We know that God created one man and one woman to be joined together and live as one flesh. We don't know exactly how many wives he had, but we know that it, he was definitely had an issue with women. Go ahead and giggle, guys, because we do too. We have the living word of God now that, that we know and we read. That's why we study this. But our human nature is no different than Gideon's. Given an opportunity to follow our own lust and our own human nature. Look real quickly at Genesis 2, 23 and 24. He said, and Abraham said, this is now born of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Let's go to the New Testament. Let's take Hebrews 13, 3, 4, and 5. It says, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Verse 5 says, let, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. 
For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's what God has promised us. So we look at Gideon's life here and, and yeah, it's hard for me not to judge him, but I have to remember I am not his judge. So how do I reconcile this? It, it really bothered me reading this thinking, I got to go to church. I got to preach this stuff. Gideon, what are you doing? Verse 31, and his concubine, so he had all these wives. He also has a concubine, which is somebody that's probably a Canaanite or someone that's not even part. She comes from from Shechem, also bore him a son whose name he called Abimelech. Abimelech. Why would he name him Abimelech? You've got to understand, names mean things in the Bible. Your name means things today. Abba means father. Malak means king. He named his son, my father, the king. And yet he was not a king. You understand, they had 40 years of peace. And his kids are watching him. Abimelech. We're going to see him go into action next week. He's probably about 40 years old now by the time we get into next week. And we'll see what a ruthless, brutal man that he's become. So verse, 37, verse 32 says, So now Gideon, the son of Joash, died of an old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Ambizorites. Verse 33, So it was as soon as Gideon was dead that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Barath their god. Baal Barath, the word Barath means covenant. It's just, it's just too bizarre to get our heads around. So it just didn't happen overnight. Understand, Gideon started this whole thing of the worship of this, this ephod that he had built, and he was allowing them to worship instead of standing up for God saying, you worship the one true God who delivered us. Now he's dead, and it just all goes to whatever it is that they want to do. So as I read this, and I'm thinking, God, how do, how, do, how do I reconcile this in my own mind? And the Lord took me to some New Testament scriptures. You realize Gideon is in the hall of faith in the New Testament? The New Testament doesn't talk about any of the bad things that Gideon did. The New Testament talks about his faith and how it subdued nations. Hebrews 11:32 says, "And what more shall I say for the time with would fail me to tell that Gideon and Barak and Samson and Japheth, which is coming in a couple couple chapters, also David and Samuel and the prophets, verse 33, who through their faith subdued kingdoms and worked righteousness and obtained promises, stop the mouths of lions." And I said, well, Lord, that's good. Thank you. And thank you for reminding me that, that you put him in, in the New Testament in Hebrews in the hall of faith. I'm glad to know that, but it wasn't enough. So he said, then read this. And this is Jesus talking. Luke 12, 48, 47, 48. 
Then the servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. You want me to read that again? A servant who knows what he's supposed to do. He knows the master's will. He knows the instructions that he's been given. You do this, but he chooses not to do it. Jesus says he will be beaten by many stripes. Verse 48. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of stripes, shall be beaten with a few. Hmm. Hmm. It helped me to understand. For everyone whom has much is given from him, much is required, and to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. It, it all, I, don't, I'm thinking, I don't think it's coming as clear to you as it did to me. Jesus himself is telling me, Gideon didn't know what you know. Gideon didn't have a Bible that he was running around. Samuel was, hadn't even wrote it yet. Yes, there was the old, you know, the first four books of the Bible, but only the high priest had that and could interpret it. He didn't have a Bible in his pocket and his phone to look to see what the Lord say about that. He didn't have what we have. He did not have a Savior. We do. So am I saying that Gideon gets off scot-free for all? I don't, that's, that's between God and him. That's, he's the judge. I'm not the judge. All I know is Gideon didn't have an understanding that you and I have, and yet we still choose to live the life of a harlot. Oh, pastor, now how can you say that about me? You know, I don't know. Maybe it's just some of the things we watch on TV. And you think it's okay? Well, pastor, they don't have a lot of cussing in that show, but there is a lot of gay people going around, and it's like, and that's okay with you? We are constantly being bombarded by the world to change the way we think. The world's soon going to call us the intolerance. We will not tolerate sin. And because we don't tolerate it, it means that we're haters and we're warmongers and we hate people. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. We love God. We love God and we love people. And it's the sin that we see and we know that they're involved in that it is going to cause them grief. When you see what happens to Gideon's family next week, you're going to go, oh, oh, where was God in that? There's consequences for everything that we do. And his family suffers the consequences of his choices of how he lived the last days of his life. Well, pastor, how are you going to relate that to me? How are you going to relate that to us? Well, because we have a Savior and we have the living Word of God in our laps that we can read and, and help us to choose and make better decisions of what we do, what we say, what we watch, what we hear, everything that's opening us and coming at us. That's why I'm having communion at the end of the service. Could I have my communion ushers please come? 
I'm not going to worry about any music because I want Josh to participate in communion with us. You guys just go ahead and stand up front there. One of these days I'm going to have a communion practice so you guys don't look like the Keystone Cops. But it's okay. We love you. Okay. Now you two serve this side. Okay. Go right ahead and do that. And you two answer this side. I'm, I'm leaving my podcast run. That's why I'm carrying this around because I, I, I want people at home that are listening to this, go grab a little cup of water, some grape juice, orange juice. I don't care. What can we use? Wine. Well, if you want to drink wine and you're at home, do whatever you want to do. But take communion with us. This is a precious moment. And after hearing how Gideon's life ended out, I don't know about you guys, but it broke my heart to see Gideon's life end in the way that it did. But yet God honors him. God loved him so much that I believe that I'll see him in heaven and we can talk about this. But you'll also see next week, if you, if you return, of exactly what happens in the rest of the family. You guys remember King David and what happened in his family after his sinful behavior. And even King David knew more than what Gideon knew. They had more opportunity to, to understand God and to know God. Here, Louis. Thank you. Thank you. Everybody is welcome to take communion. It doesn't matter whether you're part of this church or not. This has nothing to do with being part of this church. This happens, it has to do with where your heart is. If you believe that Jesus Christ truly is the Son of God and he died for your sins and now lives in heaven and resides in your heart, then it's communion's for you. Because we're remembering what he has done for us. There's nothing more precious that I have to do in my duties as a pastor. I have mine right there. Then to serve communion. We talk about things that people didn't know. Can you imagine the 12 sitting at the table just prior to Jesus being crucified? And he broke the bread and he handed it to him and he said, this represents my body. I can just only imagine their thoughts. They're thinking, wait, what? This is your, I'm going to die for you. They couldn't get their grip on it. I praise God that we can get a grip on it because we've got the book. We can go to the end and see that we win. But we need to do this regularly to remember what he has done for us. The price that was paid for each one of us to be sitting here in this beautiful house of God. All by him. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, you know, 
I haven't exactly lived my life this last week the way I should have. Well, I hope, that, I hope you're realizing that. Because me too. Maybe there's some things in my life that I, I need to say, Father, forgive me. Just clean this up again. Thank God that we have this option to thank Him and to ask Him to forgive us. Gideon didn't have those options. He just kind of followed his human nature. Satan was laughing at him all the time. But Jesus said, I got a plan to fix all that. Go ahead, Satan, you can laugh, but you won't win. Heavenly Father, as we take this little cracker that represents your body, Father, we ask you to help us. Help us to look at our human nature and to realize some of the thoughts we think, some of the words we say. Catch us, Father. Grab us. Squeeze me. Kick me in the ribs. Whatever it takes, Father. Help me to live my life better than Gideon one that is profitable and presentable to you. Father, I ask you to bless each person that takes this bread in Jesus' name. Take and eat. So you that are at home, I hope you went and got a little bit of juice or something. There's nothing magical in this little bit of grape juice. It is exactly what it is, a little tiny cup of grape juice. But Father, what it represents is you washing us again in your blood, that you'll cleanse us, that you'll heal us. Father, I ask you to do that again for us. As we clear our minds and we realize just exactly who we are, as human beings. But this helps us to remember who we are in Christ. Because in Christ, we are victorious. In Christ, we are the righteousness of God. In Christ, we are priests of the priesthood. Father, you have given it all to us. And we remember what you have done, what the price you paid for our freedom. Father, bless each person as they take and drink. In Jesus' name, amen. So, that's the only way that I could reconcile Gideon's life. Because honestly, when I was studying it last week, I'm going, God, I don't get it. I don't get it. And God speaks back to me. He goes, what possibly can you not get? Who do you think you are? You got that human nature just like he does. I hear your thoughts. I know what you think. But you have a Savior. We have a Savior. And we don't have to live that way anymore. Amen? Amen. Heavenly Father, I ask you to bless the congregation. Father, protect them. Father, bring them back again next week strong and victorious. We have a lot of battles to go out and fight. 
And Father, we will be victorious because of what you have done for us. No matter what the situation looks like, we are victorious. In Jesus' holy name, we pray. Amen.